0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today on a Monday, not a Sunday, as it's a bank holiday. Michael, how have you been? Tremendous. We did promise we would review Dave Chappelle's latest special today, and we will, but there are some things to go through before that. We have a bit more information on the possibility of power cuts as we move towards winter. Well, I suppose we're in winter, as we move further into winter, there was the new Red Sea Pole with uh, Sinn Féin. And one interesting uh, little story about rises in respiratory illnesses in children that I wanted to go into. Uh, Did you notice, Michael, that the Irish Times has started to, to talk about something that we were talking about Months ago. Um Yeah? Which, which story in particular are you thinking? The one in particular was all of this talk of what is the acceptable level of deaths with COVID, if we are to live with COVID. Yeah, yeah. And we've been pointing out for, I think, quite a deal of time that there is absolutely an acceptable level of deaths, in the same way there's an acceptable level of deaths for everything. People just don't like to talk about it. And politicians are never going to explicitly say well, the acceptable level of deaths is X. But nearly everything we do, there is an acceptable level of debts. And we know that because if there weren't, we would ban driving. We
1: we'll would ban many, many, many things. And yeah, we have been saying at this stage for quite some time that this is one of the unfortunate responsibilities that fall to those people who are in government, who put themselves forward for election and succeeded and now are in the government. It's not an easy topic, but if we are going to have a balanced approach to exiting this pandemic and to doing so in a way that people understand and and we don't have some kind of dreadful emotional and indeed policy seesaw swing back and forth because we see that uh, people are still dying and the case numbers are going wherever they're going and it is not completely over, that we're never going to properly exit this thing effectively as a society if we're waiting for that Glorious day when we can say in the last month, nobody has died from COVID. Now, to be fair, at this date maybe a month ago, out of the blue, and it hasn't happened since, it hasn't been repeated that I'm aware, Leo Veradker did actually say something to that effect, that we had to be looking at the reality that, we, that would have to be a point at which we would say we're now entering what would be considered an acceptable level of mortality for this disease.
0: He made the mistake of explicitly saying
1: it. But you know, Gary, that's what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to find some kind of language to tell people that, okay, you know what? We are not aiming at zero COVID. That's a fantasy. Uh, if it was ever possible, it is certainly no longer possible. And the chances are, as we as we look at as the way the the virus has evolved and mutated, and the capacity for reinfection that has been demonstrated, and for breakthrough through vaccination, it was probably never possible anyway. But we we're going to have to live with this. It, we we think at this stage as something endemic in the population, which will become like a seasonal flu. I had my flu shot, by the way. I recommend anybody like me who is not, perhaps, in the first flush of youth or the first finest flower of health, go and get yourself one. We're, we're, we're going to have to live with this, and but the government is going to have to say that if we're going to get people psychologically disposed to make that last move into the next step, the, the next phase of this thing. But yes. The Times has got, has has joined in on that particular chorus and we welcome them.
0: Well, I think they're making the, the very reasonable point that this is simply the reality of dealing with something which is endemic and where the vaccines are not 100% effective in stopping death. They're very effective, although now there are questions as to efficiency over time. But the data in some countries suggests it's quite solid and others it's questionable. But it, it's a difficult thing to work out because, like, As we said before, the data in Ireland is terrible. But even assuming that they're keeping up well, they're not keeping up perfectly. So there will be a level of illness and death. And politicians, and particularly the cabinet, are well aware of that. The problem is, every time you talk about it, people start saying things like, that's grotesque, it's monstrous, how dare we, zero-COVID people are having a field day with the phrasing, live with COVID. Yeah. But at the end of the day, no one has explained how you get debts and illness to zero, and you keep it there. And if it's endemic, and it's going to be constant, this state of affairs is not sustainable indefinitely. So there will have to be a point. And I think the problem the government faces is that there's lots of people happy to say that no, there doesn't have to be a point, and the impossible is in fact possible, and these people are just willing to kill people in the name of commerce.
1: There's a level of fundamental dishonesty with these people which is rep, really reprehensible. And I don't think that it's a question that they don't quite get it. I think some of them get it perfectly well. But for motives that are, I don't know, personal or political, at least with some of them, they're just pursuing this line. And it is, it's is—it's nonsense. There's a, there was an ad, which I, I think I've mentioned possibly to you before, uh, Gary, used to appear on afternoon television uh, in the United Kingdom when it was selling to a particular kind of demographic that, that that watches afternoon TV. And it was about these annuities or like mini, mini payout pension plans that you could get, that you didn't have, you could get at any age and you didn't have to get a a health check before it and they would guarantee a certain payout. And that the tagline was we pay out if you die and if you don't. And I was always curious, Gary, who are these people that, that fell into the category of if you don't? Did they know something that we didn't know? Was there a little community in the United Kingdom of people who just didn't die? Because that's who we're talking about at this stage. We are talking about the, this the notion that we can achieve no dying. Because if, if you could do it for COVID, well, why wouldn't you do it for influenza? Or why wouldn't you do it for any of the childhood infectious diseases? Or indeed, any infectious disease?
0: There's the other thing. We live in a society which allows people to say wonderfully heartwarming things about how things work, which are totally incorrect, but enable people to feel better about themselves. So no one has to ever admit that society largely runs on the idea that in many, many areas, we're willing to accept a certain amount of deaths For a certain level of convenience and a certain way of living. And I think the car point is one of the the best ones for it. If you really want there to be no road deaths, you can ban cars. But no one would ever seriously suggest doing that because the impact would be so disproportionate and so many other people would be worse off. But they most likely wouldn't be dead. So we're willing to accept a certain amount of injury and death in order to do that. The problem I think well one of the problems for the government is There's no explicit amount of death we're willing to take. There's just a cultural understanding that a certain amount of death is acceptable. And we're just not going to think too much about it. Whereas now, the government actually has to pick a level. And that's slightly different because they need to basically gauge the public mood and go, okay, this is where we are as a culture. We'll take this many deaths. And if you fuck that up well, yeah, you're going to be a monster.
1: Also, if we, if we want to be fair, I suppose, what, the point you're making actually is very much, is very, to, to the case, in a normal situation, these, how would you say, these balances, these workings out, occur in an unconscious or unplanned fashion. We The, the water finds its level, the balance is, it, it, it exists, it's there, it's given, I suppose what I'm trying to say. It's not something that we come along, we decide coldly, consciously, in a calculated way. And that's what, in a sense, we're saying that the government has to do, it has to say, OK, we're going to pick a number. That's the number that we're going to say we're happy with dying with. And obviously that's in Felicis' language to say we're happy with this number dying with. But this is the number we're, we consider to be acceptable. All of this language is really on on un, uh, un, unworkable for a politician because politicians are in the business of saying positive good things and things like death is acceptable these we are content with this level of death this is really not the language that a politician wants to get anywhere near but we're i suppose that's what we're saying that they have to get comfortable with and maybe that the, the the obvious way to do it would be to say listen well Let's treat it the same as the flu. We'll pick that number, whatever the average uh, fatality rate from the flu is, whatever the CPR, what is the CFR uh, case CFR is with the flu. We'll say if COVID is in around the same CFR as the flu, that's acceptable. But they're going to have to find some way of doing that. But yeah, it's and it's good to see the times because presumably, if where the Irish Times go, other media outlets will follow and. If we see more of this kind of thing in the, in the media, then that at least might start to give politicians permission to start talking about this in a more serious way.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, on a, on a practical level, the Times is seen as an eminently respectable newspaper. Yes. So if reporting something like this gives a certain amount of cover for people to have respectable discussions about it, which I think is why some people are so very angry that the times is moving in this direction. But as we said, it is the reality of the situation. Regardless of what people want it to be, you can't stop.
1: That seems it seems like
0: it shouldn't be necessary to point that out. I mean if these people have an idea of how we can get to absolutely zero death and no COVID in the country ever again, I would love to hear the plan. Yeah. The plan seems to so far consist of saying it's horrific to talk about the reality of the situation with no follow on as to how you might change that reality or even vague ideas. I saw one of the zero COVID people responding to uh, uh, Mark Paul, the Irish Times columnist, who was writing about this.
1: Ah, it's Mark Paul, of course. Mark Paul. said, That shouldn't surprise Mark Paul often writes
0: sensible things. And this, I've noticed two things. One is they keep trying to get people to pick an explicit number knowing that when you pick an explicit number, it'll feel terribly cold-hearted. Yes. And two, started saying things like, well, you know, if if if, it, if we're really going to uh, treat it like you know, something like road deaths or something, well, we put this amount of money into road deaths, what kind of money would we put into a regulatory body that would try and stop COVID debts? <laughs> and you see that point. And I sort of went, I think the fact we will spend incredible sums of money on stopping COVID is not in doubt, really not a question anymore.
1: No, really, really not. Uh, if we put the same amount of money into preventing road deaths, well, I think for a start, as I've observed before, one thing we could have done was just upgrade to the safety level of every single person driving a motor car in Ireland. With the amount of money we spent on COVID, everybody in this country could be ride, driving Mercedes 500s.
0: The people who are broadly against it being treated as if there is an acceptable level of death and illness, tend to use incredibly simplistic uh, maths as well. As in, the things we are doing now are good, they have no downside. Therefore, we can do them indefinitely. Whereas I would make the point that lockdowns will kill people. They may kill less people. They may kill substantially less people. But you're still killing people. Because again, in news which is apparently shocking to a staggering proportion of this country's leading lights, you can't stop
1: death. The other thing is, Gary, I I think that if everybody sat around and got seized by a moment of total frankness and honesty, whether or not lockdowns, as we have experienced them, do save lives in the global sense, is something that I think we're going to have to wait and see if it's true. I think there are going to be lots of things that we're going to be in a position to say about COVID in 10 years' time that we're not in a position to say now. When we have the time and the capacity to properly go through all of the numbers and all of the data and to compare country by country and to test all the various theories and algorithms, I think we're going to find things that worked. We're going to find that things that we thought worked didn't, things that we thought had no effect that did have effects and so on. We're going to look at countries like Sweden and their approach and Denmark's approach and our approach and the various approaches in the United States. And we're going to see. And we'll find out then, did glo- did lockdown have a global positive or did it, in fact, produce an excess number of deaths in non-COVID-related areas that meant that if you are taking the thing as a simple calculation, that... Uh, on pure deaths, as experienced, then, then it wasn't a net puzzle. The question here was always not so much the uh, the immediate number of deaths, wasn't it? It was whether or not it would overwhelm the health system, which would then lead to deaths that we could only that we could speculate about.
0: Yeah, once we hit a tipping point, things would spiral rapidly. Uh, that was the initial approach. If you remember, Michael, there was two weeks to. Uh Flatten the curve, which has um, now become two years to flatten the curve. And the government was meant to build up the health care service over time so that we could more easily deal with spikes in capacity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, attempts were made, I think we would say, not to denigrate their efforts. They largely failed. The health service does not seem in substantially better shape than it was beforehand. I've noticed a growing trend of people coming out and saying, you know, how could you expect the... It's it's very complicated to add more, particularly ICU beds, there's staffing issues, there's all of these things, and that's why it wasn't done, which would be a lot more compelling if we weren't in the second fucking year of this.
1: Yeah, that was the thing. And pretty well immediately, when this was being discussed, the response was, I oh, know you this is a fundamental misunderstanding of lay people. You can't just add ICU beds. It's part of a complex matrix, matrix of factors, of skills and individuals and technologies and all sorts of things that all go together that you can't just throw on. Well, you know, given the amount of money that's been spent, and we're now two years in, you think that it would have been possible? I mean, really, how complicated is it? We're now also. More recently reading that actually maybe what we're looking at here really is uh, a structural problem in the way we run ICUs here that we have, it seems, as a matter of policy with or without COVID tended to run ICUs up to 90% capacity, which has meant that apparently there seems to be a structural delay built in to getting access to ICU for patients who should be in ICUs, which is leading to excess mort- excess mortalities that wouldn't occur in other countries where they have greater ICU capacity built into their system. So maybe that's a lesson we have learned from COVID, and we will see eventually extra capacity added to ICU. But yeah, it's it's hard to believe, no matter how complicated and difficult it is, that in the, it, with with all the money that has been spent in two years' time, that with a, a bit of effort and goodwill, that more, significantly more capacity couldn't have been added to the ICUs.
0: No, I mean, what do you expect these people to do? They're merely the government with years of time to do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not fair.
0: On the on the lockdown thing, and on the more, shall we say, complete calculation of the right move to do, we were talking before about cancers and how we had seen people come out and say there are going to be additional deaths from cancers due to delays in diagnoses. In this country and other countries, it was pretty common. One of the things that has been interesting to see for the last while. And I was expecting to see this uh shortly, although we actually got further along before it happened than I thought we would. In New Zealand, uh, earlier in the year, you started to see a significant rise in respiratory illnesses in children mm-hmm. and of more severity than you would generally expect. Things that would normally be, you know, not pleasant, but were not incredibly dangerous. Were leading to a lot of children ending up in hospital. And the view was that what had happened was there were things like RSV, which would be a common um, respiratory illness. Because of the strength of the lockdown, what had basically happened is that children did not have the immunity they would normally have to this illness, which tends to come around winter, um, much like flu. And because of that, they were... Uh, when the lockdowns kind of moved away and they were able to go out more, they started picking up these illnesses, but often not in winter, often in summertime, just whenever the lockdowns ended. And they didn't have uh, the immunity to it they normally have. And that was leading to a much more serious illness. And then Britain saw the same thing when they reopened. And now in Ireland, there are now reports that part of the pressure that is on the hospitals at the minute is, in fact, children with RSV. That there has been a massive increase in the amount of children presenting to hospitals with it. Mm-hmm. Because they have absolutely no uh, immunity to it. That is a, a absolutely accepted point. That because of the lockdowns, people did not get ill with lots of other things. Not just COVID-19. But didn't get ill with lots of other things that were, were endemic. And you would expect to surge on pretty much a yearly basis. Yes. And now it turns out that all of those things we can expect to be more dangerous. So there will also be a question there of how bad that gets. Guy, you really are Mr. Happy Good News today, aren't you? The, the, the thing I would I, I emphasise here is none of this is to say that lockdowns were not the option. They may not have been the option. They may have been, though. Why I bring it up is because there is a far more complicated array of things to consider here then one simple thing. And then you say, okay, well, this was obviously the right thing to do. And so we did it. There are lots of impacts here that could have been foreseen. You couldn't have really quantified a lot of it, but they could have at least been considered. And as it goes on, and we know COVID is endemic, we know it's not going away. It becomes a question of, well, it's not just the COVID deaths that need to be considered. You need to consider all of these other things which we are still doing. And so... We will get to see, over winter, exactly how bad a skipped year of immunity is for these things. We know already a lot more children are ending up in hospitals where it doesn't seem like many are dying or being permanently uh, disabled by it, which is good, but we, uh, it's something to consider.
1: Yes, and it's something I suppose to keep in mind. Hopefully, neither you nor I will... Be faced with the possibility enduring an, uh, another pandemic. Oh, well, well, or maybe, maybe I, should, maybe I should say, hopefully we will on the basis that that, that would in- involve us living a very long time. But if there are other scenarios like this, which could represent themselves, that maybe we'll be in a better position. Although, listen, do we ever really learn? Does history, I mean, we love the idea that we can learn from history, but do we ever really learn from history? Or do we simply react to the set of circumstances that are in front of us and our more basic instincts take over and then we just layer them, rationalisations, in order to make us feel better about the the choices that we've made?
0: Well, I think there is a, a level of we've made the choice. Yes, it may have negative effects, but if we don't talk about those and we only talk about the good choices... Because it's the choice we all made. So why would you bring up the bad things?
1: Did you see Dan O'Brien's article there about the, the his idea that we had a tendency e, here to over catastrophize things because of the because of our history, or shall we say, our our, our recent history, which has meant that we've had this excessive, almost hysterical reaction. Took over that other countries haven't had. He's getting it in the neck from some people. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't seem to be particularly bothered because he's getting a lot of traction. I, 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 can see kind of what he was saying, but and I can see the cultural factors are obviously going to be part of it. But one of the things he he says is we don't have any large traumas in our in 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 our immediate history. Like well, our sure our the the, the history of the people still alive. Live in the country today, and so no terrible natural disasters. We have never had a war. We have, so we we missed out in World War Two. You could say the same about Sweden, but Sweden had a very, very different response to the to the pandemic. But then again, you could also say that Sweden has a very different cultural history to Ireland. Apparently, the response, which has, I think, I mean, it was done most of all, is just. A lot of the responses said that actually our culture was faced because we were the most oppressed people in the world because we were oppressed by the Catholic Church. And he, he does get, he does get at something there that, that I, I, maybe this is nonsense, but there is a, we do seem to like the idea that either we are the best or the worst, the most oppressed or the most anarchic, the most whatever. It, it, we don't seem to be comfortable just being ordinary, but also we don't like taking moral agency, but that's my own. Notion rather than his. Just saying it's our fault. It's always somebody else's.
0: Anyway. Yes. Anyway, we will see the uh, the debate move on this. And we will see some delightful claims of cold-heartedness and uncaring for... I'm sure someone will find some sort of class and race element to bring into this.
1: Well, I don't know. It's just to throw a headline at you... Um, the very sensible Colin McCarthy has a headline in the Independent, which reads, "Well, no, he won't have written the headline, but UK policy contagion is driving Irish COVID infections." So you know that's that. If if it's always a good one, isn't it? If you can't blame the church, blame
0: the Brits. Well, I mean, those are the, yeah, that's the great standard. Why did we do those terrible things? The church made us do it. Why did we do those terrible things? The Brits did them to us. Eventually, those excuses will wear out. though. will they. I think, I think we, we, we like them,
1: we enjoy them very much.
0: It is a thing found amongst the weak, Michael. They always enjoy saying it's someone else's fault. And politically, well, we're hardly going to be described as strong.
1: I, To me, it's always this, uh, we have that tendency deep within us, which, as a, a mate of mine you always you like to say, the fundamental response of every policy maker in Ireland to any difficult choice is to simply say, it wasn't us sir, bigger boys came along and made us do it.
0: So on the, on the subject of electrical blackouts oh, yes. so the Independent has a, a briefing note that was put together for a cabinet committee on um, climate change. Very interested as to who leaked this one to the Independent because it's potentially quite damaging to the government Now before I we get into that my understanding is that The memo was delivered and then it was confirmed that um, the Hunstown power plant is going to be operational very shortly. Uh, Possibly, actually sorry, it may have actually already returned to operation over the weekend. If not, it will be up very shortly. That was one of the power stations that they were trying to fix, but had not gotten off the ground yet. So the situation may have changed. It may be better than this memo sets it out to be, but the memo does not set it out to be terribly good. Basically, the memo says that blackouts cannot be ruled out over the winter, there are significant supply issues facing the country, and under a worst-case scenario, the Independent says businesses will get as little as an hour notice to reduce their electricity use or switch to generators, and family homes will be disconnected from the network. The exact quote the Independent uses is the potential for system emergencies and the need for demand control cannot be ruled out. I really like the phrase demand control. What is it, Michael? Is it a blackout? No, it's a sudden and unexpected bout of demand control.
1: (laughs) We will be imposing demand
0: control tonight from midnight to 8 a.m. That sounds lovely, that sounds harmless, and then suddenly your lights won't turn on. Which is very interesting, because I seem to recall talking to a couple of politicians who said that uh, a couple of people from the national grid had been in to speak to politicians and had assured them that there was no risk of blackouts this winter. And that seems like it was only a couple of weeks ago.
1: Yeah, but I think there was fairly quickly added an addendum to that which was, <clears throat> if not by them, but by, shall we say, persons connected or close to the energy suppliers, which was, as long as we don't get these really weird climactic conditions where you know, wind doesn't quite blow in the way that we would expect it to, but there's nothing we can do about that. But that would be really weird and strange and kind of unpredictable. We, we can't really expect that. But, but now there are bad-minded people, Gary, who are suggesting that the models that they used to work out the expected generating capacity from the renewables may not really have been the best models.
0: That would be a substantial issue if someone had used those models to, should we say, argue for the mass adoption of those renewables.
1: Yeah, and it turned out that actually what they regarded as being like the normal sweet spot of kind of generation wasn't really the normal sweet spot at all. And the likelihood of having extended periods with significantly less wind than we would normally have was maybe had a higher probability than they had had been estimated or predicted. That would be a problem.
0: Particularly if prices of electricity started to rapidly increase over the continent. You know, come on,
1: guys. We have the, the Greens are now... Did you see this the greens uh there, there are some greens anyway, are talking about putting money into developing thorium reactors.
0: The greens and these fucking thorium reactors thorium reactors are experimental technology that they know is not deployable now. All this is is a fucking kick it down the road exercise where the greens can come out and say, "We are willing to adopt these technologies when they are refined." Knowing that that means that they won't have to do anything now, it is exactly the sort of behaviour that they decry in other people when talking about other people's reaction to climate change.
1: You might as well say, "Sure, yeah, we're going to go." I can, I can, I, I always get this wrong. The kind of nuclear reactions at the moment we have are fission reactors, is that right? Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to get is the fusion reactor, and what we've been trying to get, like trying for the last fifty years. To work out a way to harness fusion rather than fission, we are not substantially closer to producing electricity than we were 20 years ago. that, And the thorium reactor is much the same. We would say, "Oh yeah, with thorium, I mean it sounds like a lovely idea, and we might have one. Maybe there'll be a great tremendous breakthrough. it'll all happen. But the likelihood is we could be here in 20 years' time still talking about thorium reactors.
0: And the, the greens talk about as a thorium is, a, is it's, you know, it's a cleaner, safer nuclear. You have to go, well, when you look at the... There are collections of annual deaths caused by different forms of energy production. Yeah. That look at both the directly caused deaths and the deaths caused by pollution, secondary deaths. Nuclear comes in safer than wind energy. (laughs) It will be hard to get much safer. There have been some horrible situations with nuclear reactors generally involving the Soviet Union, and uh, a very, very large amount of dedication to creating a problem. But in general, nuclear power, even taking into account all the accidents, has been one of, if not the safest, power option available. And cleaner, there are, or there, there is, nuclear waste produced by reactors. But that is brought up as this incredible issue. Have you ever seen the amount of waste actually generated by a nuclear reactor?
1: Well if you're talking about it phys- physically it's the physical space that it, it's not very big it's a, but it's a lot smaller than I think that people imagine
0: there's a lot of talk about what to do with it because it remains radioactive for so long but other countries have somehow managed to find a way to put it into a room generally not even that large a room generally a very well shielded room but you know
1: but i suppose to synthesize the, the thing about nuclear in the context of where we are with energy production today is there are two things first of all the single biggest source still I I would say of produ- of energy production is coal and if you were to look in the last hundred years of the number of people well let no let's say to be fair because nuclear power has been around since say the last 50 years that has been caused by deaths related to particulate pollution caused by coal where you're, you're not talking thousands you're talking millions over the last 50 years Deaths caused by or, or related to part, respiratory illnesses connected with particulates. So it's m- massively, massively more dangerous. Also, if you're talking about the issue of climate change, we're now told whether there were, we're right or wrong, we are in the last chance saloon. We are at the moment where we have to make massive, massive changes if we are not going to start to see some kind of really apocalyptic. Climate results. Now, you can be sceptical about that, not sceptical about that, but that's that is the basis on which governments are creating their policy, Gary. Right? Whether or not one might believe it, or whether or not they believe it, that's what is driving their, the energy policy. Is the assumption that we are on the point where we are the la- This is the last chance we- to get, to avoid these terrible options. And if we, if we, if we are not going to decide what we're actually going to do is like figuratively go back to the stone age by denying access to energy which is going to mean a massive contraction in our economies and huge loss of quality of life and indeed quantity of life the only option that we have right now is nuclear power that's the only one if the only thing that speaks and responds to the needs that our policymakers say that we have ...is nuclear power. When and Ryan says, you know, that we we're, the technologies that we need to meet this problem have not yet been invented, that's true. Uh, if you are desperately looking around for something other than the answer which is in front of you because you don't like the answer in front of you, fine. But all of this is just an exercise in denying reality.
0: I think it's the same thing we saw with the Dublin Metro. We don't want to say no... Because people can make arguments against it. Instead, we'll just raise some horrendously spun objection to it so that we can say, well, we never, you know, we we were willing to discuss it, but the objective is not to discuss it. The objective is to make sure that it's not touched for as many years as possible.
1: On the basis that if we, if we wait long enough, our prayers will be answered. And some other technologies will suddenly appear and we won't have to go down there. But you know what, Gary? Sometimes prayers don't get answered.
0: Or, you know, you'll be able to go, well, I mean, if we knew now, if, if we knew then what we know now, obviously we would have supported the building of them. But now it's too late.
1: Too late No, It
0: took years to build them.
1: And that's what we're already saying, Gary. They're already saying, oh, well, there's no point in discussing about this in Ireland. Because it would take 40, One, I saw one guy saying it would take 40 years to build a nuclear power station in Ireland.
0: I I have really enjoyed the amount of people, mostly Greens, coming out and saying, we couldn't build a nuclear power plant. I mean, with the planning, it would take... (laughs) It's decades. As if the planning system is this sacrosanct, immutable thing laid down by God that could not be in any way dealt with or amended to allow the building of a reactor. And that kind of, I think, explains why they will never actually build one of these reactors, or even consider it. Because if you're that limited in your worldview, you can't even think, maybe we do A before we do B.
1: Yeah. I know, you're being kind, Gary. They're not that limited. You think that they they haven't worked out in their little heads as if they wanted to? They could go into the doll and frame a piece of legislation in order to facilitate the planning and the construction of a nuclear power plant?
0: Michael, never underestimate the ability of someone to believe something silly when it's in their interest to do so.
1: Yes, but I think that's very much an almost conscious choice to believe it.
0: Oh, yeah. But they still believe it. So that is, hopefully, with the coming back online of that reactor, things will not be that bad. But it's now gotten to the stage where the cabinet is being briefed that there's a possibility it gets that bad.
1: No, I, I just... Sorry, Gary, before we we move on and we we should move I just want to say, by the way, just for my own, not that it matters, but my own personal opinion, it's not that I'm here writing a love letter to nuclear power. If it were up to me, and I don't see why it shouldn't be because I think it would be much better, my answer would be frack, 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 frack the hell out of it. Go out into the deep oceans of Kerry and Clare and Wexford and get up the natural gas Get get it out of the ground, burn all the gas we have, burn it away. I think we have the answer. We I mean we actually don't need nuclear power here. But there the other option for some reason is even more off the table.
0: Yeah, we've got to a weird situation where liquid natural gas, which would seem like something we'd just be using, is even worse to the Green Party and the government than nuclear power, which is actually pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean natural gas, which for years was regarded as being the panacea, because, I mean, the Americans have managed to actually meet the, 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 the emissions reduction set down by the Paris scores, which they actually had decided to leave because they had moved so substantially over to natural gas for energy production. And we're here and we have this natural gas, at least we're told we have this natural gas, uh, on land, which is ex, which can be extracted, uh, this shale gas. We are told that we have at least potentially large amounts of it out in the, the oceans. We're saying, no, we shall not go and look for it. We shall not take it out. It's very bad. So now we're here. So we're here. And we're relying back of the way. Anyway, just there you go.
0: Talk about energy and the impact of energy. Obviously, if there's blackouts, that's bad for the government. Yes. It doesn't look good when you say you're competent if people can't turn on their lights. That's one of those visceral things. Like, people know lots of things. But the difference between knowing something academically and actually integrating it into yourself and knowing it in a full sense. So you can know there are problems with electricity or you can know that some of the policies of the government may have a negative impact on that sort of thing. That's very different from the power turning off for a week in your house. After that, you will know in a way that you don't know before. I don't. I. I. I.
1: I know you're just throwing the the number out there as a figurative thing. I don't think it has to be anywhere near a week, but I think you're absolutely right in the sense that there are certain kinds of moments which coalesce all of the notions of the ideas that we have about competence or incompetence into a concrete fact, and which becomes just indisputable. And I think the fact, if any time this winter we do actually experience even relatively short blackouts, two or three hour blackouts, which people perceive as being as a result not of some kind of extraordinary confluence of events, but rather the failure of this government to properly plan. I think that there is something about the nature of a blackout which is not caused by some extraordinary event, which just has the stamp, the symbolic stamp of failure of state, Back, I, I, we were talking, oh, maybe two or three years ago, but the failure of the economic policies in Venezuela, and one of the things that just made put the final stamp on it was that the fact that the country, which m- with massive oil and gas reserves, was having blackouts, was the concretization of the symbolic. What people had already understood as the failure, but this was the the concrete sim- concretization of all those symbolic failures in this fact which was just undeniable. And I think in the same way here, sitting in your house for three hours in the dark, when your Wi-Fi is off and your laptop battery has run out and you don't have a gas cooker to boil a pot of water on to make some tea, they are going to be hours in which people's minds will turn to the competence or otherwise of the people who are running them. And I don't think that they will escape from the judgment of the people. I would be very curious to see what effect this will have, would have, shall we say, notionally, on support for Sinn Féin.
0: Well, it is very interesting that you bring that up, because the Red Sea poll has come out, and it shows Sinn Féin at the highest level they have ever been at, 33%. Up four. Four full points. So, yeah, the poll shows Sinn Féin up, it shows Fianna Fáil down, government is not doing well uh Finnegale Hilltown, 3 points. Green Party unchanged, but there are 4% anyway on this poll. But what I thought was very interesting was... they Because the Business Post actually bought Red Sea, so now they can just do what they want with polls. They right. started asking people about different things that concerned them. 94% of voters said that the rising cost of living was a concern. And the Business Post are saying that the drive in support for Sinn Féin is linked to that concern as to rising prices. Because, Michael, it turns out that prices going up for electricity, gas, and fuel is um, bad for governments. And that's almost like the government has an official policy of putting up those prices year on year, which they do because of carbon tax. In fact, Sinn Féin are the only major party in this country is against carbon taxes, which is to say Sinn Féin can now stand up and go, the government is going to make this more expensive for you year after year. That is their policy. We will remove those things. And the government hasn't even looked into removing. We've seen electricity gas bills spike, Michael. That's going to put a lot of pressure, particularly on poorer people. Yes. I don't think most people even know there's VAT on those bills.
1: Some European countries at this time don't have that on... Uh, electricity at all, I think.
0: Well, even some of the countries that did have that have eased off on it for the winter because we've seen they've also seen rises in prices. We, however, just haven't gotten to that point because that's Michael. That is a bold and innovative step beyond the capability of the government without months upon months of discussion.
1: Gary, is there not a fundamental kind of contradiction that oper- operational here? The government doesn't want the price of things to go up, but it's using. Explicitly saying it's going to use the price of things to change people's behavior. Now, either the price of things going up impacts people's behavior in such a way that want that they will want to behave in another way, or they. I mean, that's the point of it. And if it doesn't impact on people, well, then it's not working, and they need to do more. Or if it is going up too much, then they just have to say stop and not change people's behavior. But you can't have
0: both. Well, that is that is the point we have been making, I think, for years. But they have been saying that they're able to do these things in a way that doesn't hurt people. And we have been saying consistently, if it doesn't hurt people, if it's not regressive and it's not punitive, it cannot change people's behavior. So you've got to accept you're going to hurt people who either can't or won't change their behavior. That's what the tax is designed to do. You don't get to stand there. Well, apparently, you do get to stand there and say, no, it's going to be fine. It's actually not going to hurt people because eventually people are going to realise it is directly hurting them. Uh,
1: also, for politically, I think it, not only does the Sinn Féin have, if you, on the politics of this, the right policy, uh, if you're looking at a population where 94% of people are concerned about the increase in these prices, but they also had, it's, I, oh God, Pierce, I want to say Pierce or this is terrible. Is it Pierce O'Loughlin? The the Féin uh, finance guy? Pierce Doherty. Jesus, Pierce no, sorry, sorry. Pierce but, I know. I don't know where that came from. Pierce Doherty. Pierce Doherty actually gave a very good, coherent analysis of precisely this point and all, and precisely why these kinds of cuts are not just in electricity. I sorry, cuts rather, but increases in prices, but in electricity. But in all sorts of areas that the government is pushing are going to impact most on the poorest people. And then the nonsense of the notion that people can simply transfer from one way of generating heat in their homes to another or from one kind of car to another. I, he was very good on that. And I think that that, I think people may have noticed that that the, he, they, the Chin Féin, at least on this, have a, have a good, consistent, coherent critique. Of what is an incoherent and inconsistent policy
0: I think the the other thing that drives this is uh, most people most voters I don't think would notice this, but the more interested you are, the more you look into it and the more apparent it becomes. This government and therefore Finnegail, Finophi and the Green Party as a whole, have a very limited vision of what they are able to achieve. They have very limited understanding of what it is possible for the government to do. So, of course, you don't get rid of VAT on electricity because that's just not the done thing. Of course, you don't actually implement policies that can fix childcare because there's a limited array of policies you consider to be effective and none of those seem to be working. So you don't develop something that could work. You just stop trying. And you see it on issue after issue.
1: As regards childcare, they also have a very limited understanding of the kind of childcare that they want to see subsidised or helped.
0: We have seen before that uh, the government has decided certain types of families are better than others and certain working combinations are better than others, so we're going to make things more expensive for people who break from that. And that's worked for them for many years because you just changed between Fianna and Finnegale with some third party. But now as Sinn Féin actually appears like they may actually get enough seats to put something together, it does show a bit of a problem with that approach of we don't need to fix anything because to be blunt I think the inability of the government to handle many things is not due to any limitations placed upon them it's because they are totally unwilling to actually think of certain approaches and to consider certain approaches so they have a little playbook it's failed consistently but they're unwilling to step beyond it so well they're doing their
1: their level best, and I think whatever happens in the in the next few months is going to is going to speak very much to that just on one thing one which is not really to the point of the discussion, but about the opinion poll gary uh shouldn 't on around thirty three percent up four we 've seen two other polls which has had them on thirty one percent I think so we 're very much in and around thirty one, thirty two, thirty three 32 thirty three percent that there seems to be a fair consensus about that. It was in, I think, the Behaviour and Attitudes poll was the last one, which had Fianna Fáil, uh, Fine Gael down to, I think, 21%, Fianna Fáil up to 23%. So, Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin in and around where they are, Labour, es- the-, the Greens, all in. With this massive difference between Fianna Fáil
0: in polls,
1: any sense of why the hell, is- what's going on there?
0: I assume that's a weighting issue.
1: It's a that's a big weighting issue, between 12% twelve percent
0: to 23%. So to, to explain this to the listeners, when you're presented with the results of polls, they don't go out and ask you know 100 people and then just give you the results. They will go out, talk to however many people, and then they will weigh certain likelihoods. And this is usually all proprietary information. And they will basically try and get an accurate representative sample by what's called weighing the poll, by pushing the poll in certain directions to better represent the public. But if you make a mistake there, and it's very easy to make a mistake there, you can throw the entire thing off. So, Finnefall are getting massively divergent results, but consistent results across different polls, which indicates that those polls are being weighed separately. And neither of them might be right, but I would strongly suspect one is wronger than the other. <laughs> Yeah, I suspect. I saw somebody
1: commenting that he believes that the behavioural attitude polls was being excessively weighted towards Fianna Fáil on the basis that they believed in the existence of a, a version of a shy Tory vote in Fianna Fáil, that there were people who would vote Fianna Fáil but are reluctant to say to pollsters that they will. I was trying to go through the numbers now that would is a little bit like a cow looking through a bush.
0: I imagine Finafal would very much prefer one pole over the other.
1: <laughs> you think, yeah. I suspect so. I mean Finnafal at twelve percent uh would involve lots and lots of people losing their jobs.
0: I'd say I mean they go down to that region you're looking at two thirds of their seats gone.
1: Yeah. Easily. On a bad day, two thirds yeah. Because you you when you go down that f- that kind of drop you go from having a, a sometimes if you, you if you're if you go up a little bit you can get a a disproportionate bonus number of seats. But the same thing happens if you when you take that kind of a drop that you start to get into negative territory and you start to lose seats that you shouldn't. And at twelve percent, yeah, they're good. That would be a a blood bath. Anyway, we should we'll wait and see, I suppose, is all we can do. We will be
0: back on Wednesday. And maybe we'll talk about Dave Chappelle then. We'll get to it eventually. Eventually. Or we won't, and this is some sort of long-running joke. (laughs) Tune in, find out. Good luck. All the best.